Hello, you are listening to March Mad Men, the podcast for insanely dedicated horror fans around the globe. We are in the middle of our season's climax, The Fatal Four, in which we give thorough but loving autopsies to the four finalists in our 64-film tournament to determine what is the greatest slasher movie ever made. If you haven't already, I urge you to listen to our episodes about Black Christmas and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But tonight, we begin our maniacally meticulous examination of Friday the 13th, Part 2. This should keep us busy for a while. As always, I am John Evans, and I am joined by my two talented and creative co-hosts, screenwriter Vikram Wheat and producer Rich Eckersley. Gentlemen, feels like many moons since our last session, or maybe it's just me. I always check in with you guys at this point in the show, and I, I rarely say anything about what's going on with me. So I'll kick us off tonight by saying that uh, two things. Uh, we have a new cat. We adopted uh, a kitty who's around nine, they think. They're not sure. Oh, wow. She has... Yeah, yeah, and she has, like, a birth defect where her, her front legs are basically like T-Rex arms. So she can't really use them, but she scoots around in an adorable fashion, has a, an amazingly gentle, loving personality. We had a few bumps in the road getting her litter box trained over here, but uh, but it's been great, and my wife loves her, so it's it's nice to have a, a kitty around again and the other news is uh my wife came down with covid last week and i am on the last day or two that i expect to show symptoms if i could possibly get it i'm feeling a little touch and go in that department tonight i think it's uh nipping at my heels so hopefully this isn't the the covid podcast but my wife is definitely on her on her way to the other side she's feeling pretty normal after five six days and uh, I knew one good sign was tonight she asked me, when is it okay, do you think, to drink alcohol? And I said, if you feel like drinking alcohol, that's probably a pretty good sign. <laughs> I don't think she had been um, the first four or five days. So, Vic, catch us up on the three-ring circus that you got going up there in Agua Dulce. What's new? For a few hours today, it turned into a five-ring circus. My dogs went ape shit about something and I let them out and then I followed them out. And it turned out that some faraway neighbor had two dogs that got out of her house. And so I tracked them down and took a, you know, got the phone number off of their tags and called them. She was in Las Vegas for a week. So she didn't have anyone who could come get the dogs immediately. So I brought my dogs in, brought these two dogs into my yard, uh, slowly introduced them to Archer and Max, our two dogs. What was really <laughs> weird is that they were like the bizarro version of Archer and Max, where one of them was literally the, the Archer's of Pyrenees. One of their dogs was a Pyrenees. It was just slightly bigger and a little bit dirty, and you know, just little things that were different. And the other one was basically the same size as Max, uh, but different colored, and they had like the same relationship. It was like the Bizarro Seinfeld episode, you know, like it, it just, it was really weird to look at them. And then they all sort of met each other and just, they just went in circles, peeing on everything. 
everything in the yard. Just one would <laughs> pee on it, the other would then pee over that pee, and then somebody else would come and pee over that pee. Um, I really need a rainstorm to wash away all the urine that is currently uh, covering my yard. So, yeah, I had a, I had a. a well, luckily, you live in Southern California. Yeah, there'll yeah, be tons of rain. I'm the, sure. Yes, all the time. <laughs> Finally, somebody came just before dinner, but I spent today with a pack of four dogs. Uh, every time I left the house, literally kind of blocked me from the garage when I was trying to get out with a beer because they all wanted attention and they would all leap over each other to get at me and stuff. It was great. It was adorable. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is every once in a rare while, you stumble across something really unusual. And I have, have come across many people mentioning a film called Skinamarink. Have you guys heard of this? Mm-mm. All right. No. It is it is not available on any of the like traditional streaming sites. You're going to have to Google it and get it someplace weird. I haven't finished it, but it appears to have been shot with like a 1990s VHS camera. And it's really weird and really unsettling. And the, the log line, as far as I can tell, is two kids sort of wake up in in the middle of the night and discover that their parents are gone and all the windows and doors have disappeared. Mm. Cool. Um, I like that concept. And it's, it it is filmed in a way that I, it's just, it's so unusual and unsettling. You almost never see the characters on screen. It feels like a cursed movie. It feels like you found something that you're not supposed to see. Skinamarink. You're all horror fans. You want something. You want something really weird and unusual and unique. Uh, check it out. All right, Vic's Corner. Uh, this should be kind of a, a staple of the podcast moving <laughs> forward, where we lead off with uh, the latest recommendation. So, uh, Rich, uh, a peek behind the curtain here. We postponed recording this show last week because you had the first of two young children in the span of a couple of days to end up in the ER with. Uh, Fevers well over 100 degrees. Hope everyone's okay now. What's the latest? Everyone has recovered. I'm not going to go into, into into too much detail, uh, but you know, there's a when you put your your children in preschool, um, you know, illnesses. It's just a it's a petri dish of various yeah. viruses, um, and it's certainly made its presence known. Um, you know, anyone who has a child right now is experiencing illnesses sort of like ripping through your families and we're no exception. But the, the good news is that everyone is home now, but there were some sleepless nights that we were dealing with uh, that were that were fairly dramatic. Um, it definitely made Thanksgiving a little bit tricky um, for us. But the, the good news is that, you know, everyone at the end of the day just had a your basic virus. And they've recovered from it. and They're seeing their way to the other side. Um, so all is well. Also, it was, it was my birthday recently. Um, it was me and my son's birthday. We had the same birthday. We got to have a have a birthday together again, which is always a treat. So it's like things are looking up. You know, it's, it's going well over here. I did not get to stop and watch a movie. I still worked through my birthday. But, you know, I'm glad that Dick's enjoying his, his, his free time. <laughs> and I mean that. I, I sound facetious, but I actually mean that. You'll get there, Rich. You'll get there. And before we get too far, I want to say, John, congratulations on the new cat, man. I hope that you will put that litter box in the room so that we can we can hear on the pod every time the cat goes to the bathroom. 
it is down the hall. It is just down the hall. So you never know. You might hear a little scrabbling. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that this this cat is extremely uh, polite and discreet. So we won't hear the caterwauling, if you will, that we often heard in the old days with my, my, my previous cats. But uh, without further ado, why don't we get uh, to the business at hand? I'm I'm pretty excited about this. Thank you, Vic. We we can't forget. What are we drinking tonight? And that looked like a goblet of some kind of Belgian there. Vic, uh, tell us about it. Ah, it's actually, you're, you're quite wrong because I saved this just for the podcast. This is a flying dog family drama. <laughs> Perfect for the holidays. Uh, it's, and I can't even believe this exists. I think we may have had this once before. It's an Imperial Pilsner. Uh, it's about nine and a half percent. I got it at Trader Joe's. Really good. Vic doesn't get out of bed for anything less than eight and a half percent. I also <laughs> listen. I also don't have a lot of pilsners in my house. Okay, so that's why I'm that's why I'm I'm touting it. Uh, in addition to again, I can't stress family drama. Like it just we got I got it for Thanksgiving because how could I not? And uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm a big fan. I have a feeling that Rich's selection might be a little disappointing, so we'll save that for last. I got the old skull mug fired up, and uh, this is a coffee pumpkin stout. Rich, let us down easy, man. How much water are you drinking tonight? <laughs> I, have, I, have two, I, have, I, have, I have two oversized containers of water uh, here in front of me. Um, I don't have a beverage in front of me, but that is actually not by design. That is literally just I forgot to get one and bring it um, up here to the to the recording space before we started. So I'll probably sneak my way down there at some point. Oh, good. So it's not philosophical. It's just a matter of convenience. Yes, that's right. Hopefully one that I can correct. <laughs> just, just hold up the thing of water and say that it's full of Everclear. I'll just become that less be and perfect. less coherent. Uh, doesn't that happen to all of us in the course of these podcasts? Yes, more or less. We will take a break soon enough, I have no doubt, Rich, and you can reload. Let's get this started. Oh, yes, I did have one prefatory note. I was sort of under the perception that we were the only show to do this kind of thing. And I somehow stumbled across, while I was doing some prep for our Friday the 13th Part 2 shows, there's a show called You're All Doomed. It's a podcast, and it really does remind me of our podcast, and I think everyone should check it out. It breaks all the Friday movies into 13-minute segments. Each podcast, it's these two guys studying 13 minutes of the movie at a time with the same kind of uh, analytical rigor that we do. It's very good stuff. Enjoyed it a lot. It was fun listening to them break down Friday part two. Before we hit play, we're going to, of course, as is our way when possible, we're going to sort of watch the movie together, pause it here and there, and go through the film. Right off the bat, I will argue that this is my favorite Jason of all time, because this incarnation is so unique. I think he's the, the smartest, most versatile, and unpredictable Jason. He's not the most physically imposing incarnation or the scariest but he makes up for it with other strengths and interesting, unique qualities that the future Jasons don't have. Not to say I don't still love the monolithic, hulking, hockey-masked, Kane Hodder Jason. I, hell yeah, I do. But for the purposes of 
being the Jason for all seasons, the one that's like a little more has more depth to him. I've just really uh, warmed to this one. I want to find these you're all doomed assholes and fucking (laughs) butcher them. This is our corner of the fucking Internet, okay? The podcasting (laughs) world isn't big enough for the both of us. We need to have like one of those anchorman throwdown brawls, right? You're goddamn right. Unless they're <laughs> a lot bigger than we are, in which case, I look forward to your next episode. Um, Dorothy Mantooth is a saint. Yeah, I agree with your assessment of uh, Jason in this film. Largely, I, the word that I was waiting for you to use. Uh, that you that I, that you didn't was uh, he's he is not the most iconic, and I think that that is part of watching any Friday the Thirteenth movie. It really has at this point become difficult to separate Jason presented in the film, like what it what it would have been like to see this movie in the movie theater in 1981, versus what the baggage we bring to watching any Friday the Thirteenth movie in terms of our just cultural associations with Jason, which I find I find sort of fascinating in both versions. But this is definitely not the iconic Jason. It almost could just be somebody else. I mean, it sort of figures in, you know, the backstory and, the, and, and all that stuff obviously sort of plays enough of a role. I mean, it's very unique and it definitely stands out. And I agree, he's the most human. He's the only Jason that runs. Yeah, he's not the prototypical Jason that we've all, you know, come to love and associate with the franchise. And yeah, I think that's definitely a double-edged sword. And we talked about it before, and we'll keep talking about it. Yeah, very human quality to to him. And I agree. I mean, he's almost more human than than Michael Myers a bit in in this one. You know, less. Yeah. Like the, the despite the fact that like the the, the general approach, the the sort of like the the galoot approach is what you're, you know, really getting at the most, like, base level here. There's a directness um, and almost more of, like, a personality about him in, in that regard, like, in terms of him feeling like a, a more character and less character, you know, less less yep. monster and boogeyman. My favorite of all time? I don't know. I don't know. You gotta love, like, maggot face, Jason. There's a lot to be said for that. <laughs> Certainly in terms of, like... Now, if we're talking about, like, straight-up, like, like design or i or, or you know just like being like iconic like no but like performance based and you know like presence um i, I see where you're coming from i don't know that i i, t- I totally sign off on it but like i see where you're coming from i think what we'll get into along the way is it, it's not so much the presence or iconography look or, or feel of him it's just like his toolbox is so much larger and deeper than the other jasons that he really just will show us he's capable of things that we we never see again and that's kind of why and then i I like it so much and also there are things that are kind of typical broader slasher sorts of behaviors and elements that our traditional jason that we're going to come to pretty much calcify soon enough after this movie um just that's not in the repertoire so that's kind of where i'm coming from and we'll we'll get into it but if you guys are ready let's uh let's sync up i think the paramount mountain would be an appropriate place to start a golf and western company
a Steve Miner film. Now, Steve Miner was involved in the first movie. Uh, actually, a lot of the people involved in the first movie just graduated up and took a higher level uh, with the second movie. But it's a lot of the same people. Uh, it's just the top people uh, left. And we'll get to that later, I'm sure, at some point. So we have this kid tromping around in the gutter, singing the Itsy Bitsy Spider song. And his mom or her mom yells, come home. And with one petulant splash, takes off. And then suddenly, like a foot away, there's Jason, who's walking, uh, pursuing the kid, it seems. And by the way, this is the only time that Jason is played by a woman. This is actually the costume designer who's doing the legs of Jason here, who came up with the bag thing. She was inspired by the town that dreaded sundown, which makes a lot of sense when you look at the two looks. That opening shot actually reminds me a lot of Halloween as well. Uh, I think both the the interaction between the kid and Jason, you know, we we see Michael Myers bump into kids uh, and usually in this same way where he's framed out of it. I think what you're what you're seeing right off the bat is you're already starting to see the influences of some of the other films that have already had on this. And I think you even see not so much in the first one. I think you're going to see a lot more of it in this. Again, you get the opening shot coming up on the house when they switch to sort of a POV cam. That looks very much like some of the opening, uh, uh, much longer take, uh, POV take in Halloween. And then the kid and, and Jason sort of interacting on the streets. Do you guys think Jason has the bag on his head right then? Great question. Great question. Well, say, look, yes. we know. Seems seems like the bag is 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 Jason's comfort zone. It also seems like he was like literally within like breathing distance of that kid. So you know he obviously was right. remaining obscured somehow. I'm a little on the fence of what would be more disturbing, whether he's got the bag on or not. And I I think I would land on based on like the long look we get of him at the end. Unless it's Halloween, he's probably better off without it as far as passing in society. I mean, he looks, you know, fucked up, but he's also, you know, like just this bearded, rednecky, backwoods kind of a guy who has some, I wouldn't say mild, but not extreme deformities. I, th- I think, like, people would be embarrassed to, like, pay him too much attention. But if a dude is wearing, like, that that pillowcase sack mask you're like i I think you're actually going to be a lot more on high alert don't you (laughs) i don't know (laughs) he's not bald yet or anything i mean he's got a beard he's got long hair you know like no i i think i think i think pillowcase on the head probably makes me more suspicious of someone yeah no no matter how close they're standing to me all right that's fair no Um, one with good intentions has a pillowcase on their head But also worth noting, I mean, this is we are opening with Jason in the suburbs, which is something we are not going to see anything even close to for a very long time. So, I, John, what you were talking about with terms of his toolbox and stuff, this is a really interesting way to start because how did Jason get here? How did he find this person? Like, you know, the 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 sort of the the what was happening an hour before this or whatever. Um, are sort of really interesting questions. And because we haven't, we, we, we don't have all the other 
iconography, don't have all the other stuff. It, if you were watching this for the first time in 1981, as I was saying, sort of looking at it from that perspective, it really creates him as a, a more driven and, and kind of functional character in the world than, than I think he turns out to be by part four. Absolutely. I think we do need to unpack this. Let's start doing it now. Something that, you know, might come up in an overview show, but here we are, like, we can't gloss over the fact that this Jason clearly has it together enough to track this girl to her home on this mission of vengeance. He's made it to this quiet neighborhood. He's wearing appropriate clothes. Like, clearly we're far from the campground he's not just wandering around to your point vec the way we see later some small geographical area on foot this jason obviously requires some rational thinking and grasp of our civilization to find this girl while i think we'll get into a lot of sort of ludicrous logical inconsistencies with the idea of jason existing at all in this movie um, I do think there is some consistency with his characterization in the film that does suggest, if you're willing to sign off on it and get on board, that this this is a a killer, a psycho that isn't completely incapable of doing stuff like finding this girl. It is like something that you do have to grapple with that. She, this is the girl that killed his mom, and somehow he has, I guess in two months, two months have passed, he has found her, and this is this is what happens. And it does not seem like a, a small task. Like, this is not, she's not living in this house um, three blocks from Crystal Lake. So you can either just reject it and say it's silly and it doesn't make sense, or you can try to interpret it in the way that you're giving this Jason credit for doing so. And for all the inconsistencies and cheats that the whole premise has, and we'll get into that, but I am willing to believe that this Jason might be capable of finding her. But it is kind of a, a mind blower based on, you know, what we, our conceptions of Jason are outside of this movie. Maggot face Jason would never have been able to find her. <laughs> you literally, you just, no, you no. just have to get out of, out of the, the line of sight of maggot face Jason and you're pretty safe. <laughs> yeah. He turns into a tank, basically yeah. a zombie tank is what he becomes. Yeah, absolutely. The last thing I wanted to say before we get into this dream sequence recap is that you can hear the Harry Manfredini score. Uh, of course, we can't because we're watching it um, muted. It's so eerie and ethereal. And I think it, it feels more suited to a haunted house movie. Not to say that it doesn't bring an interesting, somewhat discordant dynamic to the table here. I really like it and I wouldn't change it but it feels charged with the supernatural and ostensibly on the surface at this point in the series, that's not appropriate to the content of the material. But as we kind of get into the idea of how this Jason even exists, uh, I will say that things get pretty metaphysical pretty quickly. 
and so maybe it is appropriate. And of course, the franchise goes full supernatural in a few movies from here. Let's like pause it and then hit play when she when we first see Alice having this nightmare on her bed in this delightful green corduroy outfit. <laughs> no, she's a it's like a overalls and a and a thick uh, turtleneck sweater. She's on a hideous bedspread. Are we all there? <laughs> yep. Now, I will say this is at least somewhat diegetic. Like if you're trying to justify a, a recap sequence, she is dreaming it. Now it doesn't make much sense that she has this perfect recall of the dream and there's shots that she wasn't there for, but we do kind of justify the recap. It's not just previously on Friday the 13th. That's true, but it's also a really long detailed recap. Yes. It's like six or seven minutes, I believe. Yeah, yeah that, that, this um, is like we, we need this thing to qualify as a feature film, so we better include the recap. And the and the first one came out like a yeah, year yeah. before. <laughs> ten months, dude. Yeah. Ten months. <laughs> this is all pretty like, fresh. Do you really need a recap? Like, and, and, like, do you need this to understand the movie that follows? No. It does seem like they're padding out their running time. I believe it's something like the rest of the movie is, like, an hour and ten minutes or something obscene. Like, it really is wild when you take out credits in this sequence. All right. Let us pause it here on Pamela um, talking to her because I do have some comments. We're not going to ever do our Friday the 13th Part 1, I don't think. So I, I want to give some credit and some discussion to this performance that we have here. When she says, oh, I'm not afraid, with this strange, happy coldness, I think that it's great that they got a really good actress for this part. Someone who, in her own mind, is far too good for the material. Because I think that she, Betsy Palmer offers a hint of the deranged but it's so easy to go over the top as a performer with this kind of character. You get a lot of characters playing crazy in slasher movies. And I think that Betsy does it with great professionalism. Like it's, there's a subtlety to her performance. And I also like that she uses the phrase uh, when she's describing the counselors um, neglecting Jason while they're having sex. She uses the phrase making love which I think is an interesting and revealing thing. That's like this puritanical way to say it, even in uh, 1980. And I think it tells you something about her. I actually made a note about that very same line, but my thought was, and yes, you're, I mean, you're right about the, the choice of the phrase making love, but also the fact that that's what she specifically calls out. They were making love. But the... The mythology that grows out of it, and if you think about uh, Jason X, when he gets the two teenage girls, it's like, let's have premarital sex and do drugs and drink beer. And what you realize is what triggers uh, first Pamela and then Jason is not so, it's not sex. It's not drugs. It is behaving irresponsibly. That if you have a responsibility and you're not attending to it, then you are neglecting it. And that neglect is what led to Jason's death. And so it's in, I, I just hadn't put 
quite put it through that lens because there's so much talk about, you know, is it misogyny and is it, you know, is it anti-sex and is it anti-sexuality and, you know, that kind of mentality because it really bleeds from this and to a lesser extent Halloween out into slasher films in general and creates what we think of as the final girl, you know, and her slutty best friend who's going to get killed and that kind of stuff that really is the foundation of slasher films as we think of it. And so it was interesting to me that the, the really the seed of it is that one line, they were making love while my boy drowned. You could draw a straight line from that, you know, 40, 20 years, 30 years later to Cabin in the Woods. It's fascinating that so much history of this subgenre is wrapped up really in that one line and how non how 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 much of what we got out of it isn't really in there when she first says it it's complex because on the one hand guys like jason are not capable of having anything close to a normal sexual relationship and the voyeurism and the sort of interest like okay it's very michael myers like let's not get off on this whole like rabbit hole but michael myers and his sister in the first halloween which we we will get to soon it's not like his sister and uh michael myers sister neglected michael and then something bad happened to him it's more like this kind of inability to relate to sexuality in a healthy manner but yes in this story it seems like, especially with this preface or this like setting the table, that the fact that they were having sex or playing parcheesi isn't really that important. It's that they were doing their own thing and they neglected him and he, you know, he suffered the consequences of that. It happened to be that they were having sex, but that's not the bottom line, right? Isn't that the, the takeaway? Exactly. And yet and yet somehow as it petered out into the the genre, that's what it became about was drinking and drugs and having sex. Again, drinking and drugs never even mentioned. It's not like they were high in having sex. It's well, because it was nineteen fifty eight, by the way. Yeah. It's just that they were irresponsible. And that's what Pamela was punishing and that's what Jason was punishing, at least at the start. Doesn't it all amount to irresponsibility? I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, but like, you know, in, in sort of a cultural context, you're kind of splitting hairs. Also, I, w- I will say that Michael Myers' sister was also being a negligent babysitter. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. But, yeah, but at least he didn't drown or something because well, of it. Well, no, it was, it, was her, it was her blood on her blood on her own hands, I guess, in that scenario. By that <laughs> rationale, Rich, if the teenagers not taking care of children and having sex were using a condom and being responsible, Jason would leave them alone. That depends on uh, <laughs> on what side of the political spectrum you stand on. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, um, let's proceed through this extended recap. It keeps kind of like cutting in and out of her having the nightmare in order to make edits and move forward in the recap but we actually see jason floundering in the water when he's alive and he's clearly misshapen and messed up 
before he's dead. And yes, you let him drown. You never paid any attention. That's, as you said, Vic, that's the bottom line. It's interesting. That's actually kind of a dream within a dream, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Alice never saw Jason drown. <laughs> I'm going to say, look, I, I find this this intro and recap kind of painful. Yeah. Like it, just, it just goes on and on and on. I, I want to point out that even Pamela was doing tableaus because she hangs Steve Christie upside down there. So that's a serial killer or a slasher movie trope that uh, Pamela engaged in. Okay, yeah, this long, really brutally, poorly choreographed fight scene that they show between Pamela and, and Alice reminds you of how unprofessional the first movie was. It It is a little embarrassing. And that's what you want to be reminded of at the top of your sequel. Like what? Like this is in no way necessary. If if you think of this flashback as being the thing that is is preparing you for the story that's about to unfold in the second part, this scene has zero bearing on anything you are about to watch. This is what? a complete waste of everyone's time. I don't know yep. if they needed to get the the decapitation because we are going to come upon the head again. Well, I will say that Pamela is very much a character in this movie. This is the last movie that she's a character in. So I I don't mind investing her because she's not alive in this movie. Mm -hmm. But you do need to establish Pamela for the rest of the movie with the shrine and and what Ginny does to make sense. And to understand the power uh, that she had over Jason. But there was certainly a more a more eloquent way of doing it than this seven minute flashback punctuated by Jenny in bed going, no, uh, no. Yeah, it seems a bit awkward. My biggest beef with it is actually just showing Jason coming out of the water at all, because I, I think if you just omitted that with like the 10 year old Jason, whatever, two months ago grabbing her out of the canoe and chalk that up to a dream, the rest of this movie would make so much more sense. But one of the biggest like logical paradoxes of the movie is how you get from the idea that somehow 10-year-old zombie Jason grabbed her out of the canoe to what the rest of this movie suggests. That's the biggest problem with the film. And they could have just circumvented that by just like uh, that, you know, maybe that happened, maybe that didn't. It was probably just her dream. But they have to put it right at the front of the movie for reasons that don't make sense to me. She seems to be taking a nap at like eight o'clock at night. Well, yeah, her mom's going to call and she suggests she just fell asleep on the bed there, Mm -hmm. which I guess can can happen. But it is it is a little weird i like this whole sequence in some ways and i hate it in others but uh any any thoughts about what we just watched before we move on to this couple of extended long takes with the steady cam following alice around her house all right well i did have something to say about pamela being a character in this movie and the fact that we leave her behind after this movie but this movie feels like psycho to me in a lot of ways because she's the animus for murder in Jason so distinctly. Her presence just looms large over the film. She is the driver of her son's crimes, but also in her power over him. 
And this is the only one of these movies that explores that mother-son dynamic a la Psycho. It's quite similar, actually, probably intentionally, uh, in the sense that the mother is dead, but it's still such a huge part of the son's murderous psychology. And as I think we'll probably all agree, there's a hell of a payoff in the end. Well, and it's a mirror image of the first one, right? Wherein Jason is dead, but has this profound uh, murderous impact on Pamela. We even get Pamela speaking in Jason's voice a couple of times, which is much more akin, I think, to Psycho uh, in terms of in terms of taking on the persona of this person whose whose loss has driven you mad. But yeah, I, the the Psycho thing is actually a really interesting pull, and I would bet that that's a conscious uh, choice on on a lot of parts. Again, Steve Miner's a very smart filmmaker really made a classic instant classic in Halloween H2O. So obviously I think he was drawing on the works of the masters like Hitchcock uh, early in his career. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, no comment. Uh, that's going to go on for years, dude. (laughs) Certainly is. Certainly is. It's just weird that in the first movie at, as you were kind of saying, it's Jason who is driving Pamela to kill psychologically, but not really because he's not a vengeful ghost. It's just in Pamela's mind, right? This movie tells you that there's no way to see it otherwise. And because he's alive and there is a great irony in that, in the way that they retcon on their mythology And I might as well say at this point that Tom Savini and Victor Miller, the original screenwriter, and Sean S. Cunningham, they all bailed on this movie and and did, like, nothing special instead. But they all bailed. Um, Like, The Burning was what Tom Savini went on to do after, like, instead of doing this movie. Because they thought it was so ridiculous that Jason was going to be the killer in this film. They're just like... You pitched them that. The studio said that's what they wanted to do. And all of the the three main, I guess, in some ways, creative forces behind the first movie were all like, fuck that, that's stupid. And they didn't get involved in this at all. <laughs> Where is the burning now in this competition? <laughs> didn't even leave the gate. That's right. Yeah, it's in the bargain bin. <laughs> yeah, a completely, you know, pedestrian forgettable film but uh it doesn't have this massive logical paradox at at the middle of it and so i'm sure we discussed this eight years ago or whenever we covered this movie the first time vic but this movie suggests that jason and pamela were alive at the same time from 1958 to 1980 and jason was living in the woods or something while Pamela kills people to avenge him. And she thinks he's telling her to. So isn't that comically sad on some level? Like how close were their misses as far as never crossing paths or something and becoming aware of the fact that they were both out there. He just crawled up on some shore and has been roughing it ever since. Is that the implication of the movie. And by the way, he would be in his early thirties by this point. If you do the math from 1958 to 1980 or so, it's pretty indefensible. 
sensible. But I understand from the perspective, like, nobody thought there would be a second movie. Obviously, she was beheaded. She can't be the antagonist again. We need a new villain. And I think that, that Jason ultimately becomes a great choice because of the way the mythology can be massaged to justify the sort of pathos of this character. But if you look at it closely at all, it's totally absurd. Or am I crazy? Is there some logic that I'm missing that could make all this make sense? Not only is there no logic, but this is, and I think what Cunningham and Savini and Victor Miller, like what they missed is the fundamental, like there's a fundamental logical flaw with like most uh, uh, slasher franchises, right? Like you see Halloween twists itself into pretzels to try and explain by the sixth film why Michael Myers is still alive and still killing people, you know? And you can argue that Friday the 13th, by resurrecting Jason as a zombie, is the only one that at least has a logical explanation for 7, 8, 9, and 10. I think they just overestimated how much audiences give a shit about any of this really making sense. Because I don't th- I don't think it does. I don't think there's any way to make it make sense. We talked about this a lot when we did our first pass through the uh, through the series with Mike. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't work. It doesn't make any logical sense. And yet here we are just like, I mean, how many times did we say, what the fuck was Michael Myers doing for the last two years? You know, what was he? You know, when he's when he's hanging out in the, the weird dudes. Uh, yes. Yeah. You know, and then but then you you cut to uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween, too. And everybody's like, what the fuck? This doesn't make any sense. Why is he still alive? She shot him in the head. And he's like, he just is. Like, just deal with it. You know? <laughs> like, Rob Zombie. Right. Rob Zombie's the only one who got any shit for it. Everybody else <laughs> just did it and was like, yeah, no, this is just what happened. Absolutely. I mean, that's a good point because the, the whole recap here doesn't help. Like, they could have just skipped some things, fudged some things, and you kind of have to reconcile the two films. But the the fact that they make this attempt to directly bridge the two films draws more uh, attention to it than, than it otherwise would have gotten. And yeah, in the whole scope of retconning mythologies and absurd justifications for like Michael Myers going dormant for decades sometimes in the Halloween series. This actually isn't one of the greatest offenders in terms of making sense. And one thought I did want to throw out at some point, I'll just say it now because we're on the topic. What if her doing those murders brought him back somehow? And, like, I'm not saying it's ever explained or justified, but I I could get behind, it's far too implied instead of sold, but you could say, what if, like, that blood sacrifice in some way brought him back to life, like, actual life in some, you know, supernatural manner, and, and then he got to kind of grow up again 
from 1980, and he is technically reborn for this portion of the trilogy. I could kind of get behind that. They don't do any of the sort of groundwork or mysticism to justify it. But if you could just say, oh, well, it's out there. We just don't see it. There is kind of a logic to the idea that he died in 1958, but because of her campaign of vengeance, he was reborn. I can see that, but he'd still have to age. Otherwise, he'd just be 12 and a half when... (laughs) Well, he is aging. He is aging. Yeah, like I meant literally when I say reborn, I mean like he comes back to life and then he's alive. Yes. Right? No, He's I'm not a ghost. But what I'm saying is, yeah. at the end of the first film, it's a 12 year old who jumps out of the lake and pulls yeah, her yeah. down. It's not a grown, it's not a 17 year old or whatever. Well, okay, but we don't ever really see, it's somewhat, I think it's disingenuous, but this opening sequence. Like, I don't believe that he's 12 and two months or whatever that would have to be. But we don't ever really see him. And then the movie jumps forward five years. So by the time we see him again, he could be 17. So the other thing I want to say, because I feel like we're getting off into the weeds in this, is look, what I, the, the point that I'm trying to make, the point that I think Savini and, and Cunningham missed, is that we're still talking about one of the four best... Uh, slasher films ever made i don't think it matters like i don't think it matters that the logic doesn't line up and the steve minor and the whoever the you know when they put this movie together they decided fuck it jason's the jason's the killer let's just go with that and they just kind of rolled right over it just like rob zombie uh, and I just like I it doesn't really bother me in Halloween, too. It doesn't really bother me here. And so I think it's it is one of those things that like, look, like, you know, you're going to see a slasher film. Check check some of your logic circuits at the door or you're not going to have a good time. If you've ever seen a sequel, like you have to laugh at, at some of the leaps of logic and retconning that go on. So why would this be exempt from that? And we're watching. Alice go into her hideous bathroom and do the movie cliche of throwing cold water in her face because I've never done that, but apparently all movie characters get their shit together by throwing water in their face. I've thrown cold water in my face. I've never done it to like get my shit together. <laughs> but it is refreshing sometimes. Well, you should try it, John. <laughs> I should. I should. But in the movies, it's always to, quote unquote, get your shit together. So she's talking to her mom here on the phone, and apparently they gave Adrian King no dialogue. But it was like this was they had no script for this, so she's winging it. And I think she does a pretty good job of improving here, as she's having this phone call with her mother back in somewhere. I heard it's California is where her parents are. I'm not sure if that comes up in the call or not. They want her to come home. She's making the argument that putting her life together. This is the only way she knows how is to be out here by herself close enough to crystal lake for jason to come kill her yeah kids remember this go go come back home it's okay you can go live yeah in the basement there's no shame she's also got a huge place i don't know where they live but 
this doesn't seem like a, a college kids apartment kind of a situation. Like I don't know the I'll buy whatever backstory, but uh this is a larger space than you would expect from a former camp counselor. Okay, you see her final girl art. She's processing her trauma with art. I think she had some art in the first movie, but uh that looked like a self portrait to me that she had on her kitchen t- table. Okay, so we she goes into the bathroom and I'm sorry, her bedroom to undress to end up having a shower. And it was almost jarring to me that the camera doesn't follow her in. I'm like, oh yeah, oh the cameraman wants to be respectful. Got it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're starting to get this uh this sense of a POV camera, right? Uh yeah. we're gonna get this kind of I'm gonna call it a jump scare after a preposterously short shower when she This is the shortest shower of all, all time. Yeah. yeah. But that is that's led up to by that handheld uh camera that gives you the sense that there's someone inside sort of watching her, even though there isn't. Which is kind of amazing that in 1981, we had established the POV camera of the killer in a slasher film so much that we could start using it for fake jump scares. Uh, You know, that it's not really the killer's POV. Yeah, that was really strange, and I actually kind of like it, that she pulls the curtain and is staring directly into the camera, staring at us, and just has this kind of look like this sort of neutral but somewhat hostile look, like, really? Like you followed me into the shower. It's very odd because no one's there. It's not a POV, right? You can tell that that Steve Miner was really proud of the shot. <laughs> yeah. Um, although I like, I mean, to be fair, look, I like the way all of this opening scene is shot. I think this is exceptionally suspenseful. Very well done. Yeah, the tension really draws out here because we know there's a bad guy in the neighborhood. We know whether it's Jake or whoever that she is in some legitimate danger we see that the window is open which is odd because like she either left it open and is fine with it or is not weirded out that it is open the open window in a slasher film always means the killer's inside yes (laughs) she has this ice pick lying around which she picks up and she's creeping like she's kind of on defcon 4 here like she really seems to be processing some serious anxiety as she approaches the window and i looked this up i'm gonna have more on this when we do the overview episode but i'm curious do you guys think is that the first cat scare i can't comment but it's an absurd one the cat is launched through the window yeah that certainly cannot be the first cat scare Absolutely. I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. So the she goes to the fridge here? to get the cat some food. Oh my god! Let's hit pause. <laughs> Gotta hit pause as she opens the fridge there. Did you say it's the best cat scare, Rich? <laughs> that was that was that was my commentary. Yeah. The first cat scare, no, but the best cat scare, yes. <laughs> Oh, yeah, we didn't talk about, like, she gets the second phone call, and I was kind of curious, like, what do you guys think of that? Is this another Black Christmas thing? It's either totally random or it's Jason, right, calling her. The implication is certainly that it's Jason. And again, this is what you get in Halloween, right? When she gets the, Lori gets the call, she just hears breathing, and she hangs up, and then when they call back, 
But so, which begs the same question. Did Michael Myers call her? Does he know her phone number? You know, and that's the same question here, right? Where's, did Jason call her? Does, does he have a cell phone? Is he one of those big blocky fucking uh, <laughs> Gordon Gecko cell phones that he's, that he's using to fuck with her? I could buy that there would be a pay phone around because pay phones were so ubiquitous, but he still has to have the number. And, and that does suggest and a quarter, right? I mean, he had to get the bus out here from Crystal Lake, so I assume he has some change. <laughs> How would you like to be on the bus with Jason <laughs> Honestly, I feel like there are scarier dudes than Jason on, on, on some public transit, but... Uh, God, so he's calling to see if she's home. I, no, sorry. I want the sh- I want the short film of like the people on the bus with Jason and like everybody just like trading looks and being like, is anybody anybody gonna say anything? No, no. Okay. Just another day on the two nineteen, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think the scene certainly suggests that this is something in part two jason's toolkit the ability to make phone calls it could be totally random i mean it doesn't commit to the idea that he's making sure she's there and if he does that he gets into the house or apartment or i mean it's clearly a house but uh he gets in there really shockingly quickly after that phone call it's kind of absurd it might also have just been a prank phone call like that was a thing that happened in the 80s right like we all forget about that yeah. Yeah. Or like in we were talking about with Black Christmas, the idea that, of course, these, these girls get these calls all the time. And I actually thought that the previous calls that they got, what they called the breather, were probably somebody else and not the not the killer who's making the calls from inside the house, because it was so common. The rudimentary, unspectacular breathing and hang up thing yeah that that could have been you know you could get three different guys calling you with that yeah. thing with that like same that. act john's like who hasn't called a canadian sorority breathing heavily and then hung up the phone i mean that's just a normal thing to do right right <laughs> well you guys know how uh dear to my heart the canadian sorority houses are i mean i i may have phoned a couple of times just to hear their little canadian accents <laughs> <laughs> What's this all about? All right. <laughs> so a couple of things with her opening the fridge on the on the head. I think we should cover that. Um, Pamela's head looks pretty fresh here. It doesn't look exactly like uh, Betsy Palmer, but it, it 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 this is supposed to be two months later. You know, I'm no expert in decomposition, but it's recognizable and now we have to it's been refrigerated john yeah (laughs) it's been there for like a week she's been living on chinese takeout (laughs) sorry i'm gonna backtrack because do you realize what this means is that jason was on the bus with his mother's head yep that's right (laughs) yeah you have to acknowledge You have to acknowledge that Jason brought his mother's head along on whatever journey this entailed. He gained entry via her apartment window, put the head in the fridge, then skulked around somewhere, waited for her to discover the head before making his move. And his move 
is to grab her from behind and put her own ice pick through her temple, which I think is a kill somewhere between a Cold War assassin and a real serial killer in its characteristics. Brutally effective. The shot is really effective too. I mean, it's really, it's yeah, a, yes. this is, again, the, like if you can, you can get lost in the weeds on like, when did he put the head in the fridge and everything else? Like mm-hmm. independent of those questions, this is all really effective. Oh, I just yeah. think it, you're, you're making it all sound very uh, premeditated. And to me, it's like this, this is a, this is stalker jazz that we're watching. Like he, he didn't have a plan. He just had a head in a bowling bag and he came in here and like, he was just sort of like, he just felt it out. Like the fridge felt right. You know, he saw the, the ice pick, like he's just, he's just feeling it. He's in a groove. (laughs) (laughs) It's like improvisational jazz. I I like that. I like that. But I mean, like before we move on, I, I do think like, let's really process the implications of this. Like what we know for certain is that this guy lost his mother to this young woman. He brought her head to the killer's house, positioned it to be discovered, and then delivers this coup de grace of driving this ice pick into her temple, which I do have to imagine is a horrible way to die because it's not quick you would definitely suffer quite a bit before it actually penetrates your frontal lobe and starts to shut down uh systems there's a lot to to grapple with as far as what this tells you about this killer but i will say that nothing about this whole sequence has anything to do with just a guy wandering around in the woods and murdering whoever he encounters with his machete or whatever he picks up. This is a premeditated revenge killing. And that's somewhat unprecedented in the series. This is like a mob killing. Yes. (laughs) This is, this is what I'm doing and this is why I'm doing it. Like this is, it's not a it's not a fish wrapped in a newspaper, it, but it's it's mom's head in the refrigerator. Like this is why I'm killing yeah. you, and now I'm killing you. It's more twisted. Like a mob guy would not actually uh, put his mother's head through this experience of trucking her to the murder scene and putting her in the fridge. So that's what sort of levels it to the next point of insanity. But you're absolutely right, Vic. This otherwise feels like a mob killing. No doubt about it. And that's unique for Jason. That That is a, a beat that we don't see in slashers, let alone in Friday the 13th. Well, and it, if you think about it, like we were talking about in terms of the, the mythology of the, the slasher and certainly the mythology of Jason, right? This is it. He's gotten his revenge on the girl who killed his mom. And, like, now he's just going to retreat to his shed and, you know, shit in a toilet with no plumbing for the rest of his life. <laughs> well, uh, which he apparently does for five yeah, years. I mean, yeah, Am I wrong? I that up. <laughs> but, damn it, these irresponsible teenagers keep stumbling into his path. So that's where it becomes less about revenge and more about 
like punishment. Does that make sense? Well, you also have this sort of territoriality of it, though, too, in the sense that he doesn't like go around the state. However, he found her. We can say he has some geographical range because, again, this girl, Alice, is not living on Crystal Lake. We can take that for granted. But it really feels like he is just going to defend his turf in this film. Again, like putting aside other films in this film, you do get the sense that if they hadn't started a new summer camp very close to the first one on Crystal Lake, we could have gone any number of more years without him killing anyone. That's true. But again, that's, so that's the idea that this was the revenge portion of the film, right? Right. He had to, he had to kill this girl because she killed his mother. Uh, and yeah, so it becomes territorial, but also obviously I feel like we're, we're sort of delving into this idea of the irresponsible teenagers being the ones who at least die first. Well, I mean, that whole conversation, I know we have to have it and, and we will, but I don't think it's necessarily organic to the psychology of the character that we get in this movie. Like that's more that sort of desire to graft onto it. These themes of the slasher genre, not really reading the actual text that we're presented with because yes, he, he kills Sandra and cut rate, kevin bacon when they're having sex and all of that but i just can't get past the idea that five years have gone by nobody was around he did not rove the state looking for people having sex so at least as far as like what we're given in this movie i think you're reading too much into it beyond the fact that they are invading his his territory and he kills the dog just for walking up to his feet right so i don't i don't think it's like oh this dog is being irresponsible or something ergo i can justify killing it no but seriously fuck that dog uh no (laughs) i love the way these things evolve out of the conversations that we have is that we are i think you have to watch this film through two different lenses the one lens is this as a as a standalone film, if it was 1981 and you were watching in the movie theater and then through the lens of slasher films in general and how it fits into the paradigm of the, the slasher genre as a whole. And you're right. I think it's it's you can get too far into the weeds on one uh, and not pay enough attention. Like I was saying, in 1981, people just sort of bought this stuff. And, and I agree with that. I mean, I sort of feel that way, too. So I I, I see what you're saying. I think that it's there's going to be two ways of looking at it as we move forward through it. Uh, and I'm curious to see, because it's just come up a couple of times now, only five minutes in. I'm curious to see how it plays out as we go through the rest of it. Uh, apparently when they were doing this kill, like when, when he's sticking this ice pick in her head, the thing kind of malfunctioned and it didn't retract and it hurt her some. I don't know how seriously... But uh, there were a lot of injuries associated with the making of this film. It was it was kind of a unprofessional, shall we say, sh- shoot in terms of its safety protocols and its stunts, and a lot of mishaps occurred 
and that was that was one of them. And we should say before we send her uh, Alice off, Adrian King. Uh, I'm sure we'll cover this in greater detail in the overview, but. Uh, she was being stalked by a fan of the first movie at this time. He ended up putting a gun to her head at some point, and she talked him down and got out of the situation. But um, I don't know exactly whether or not they would have rolled with this character again and had her be the final girl, or if they all along... Like, she was going to die one way or another. But she definitely wasn't up for a larger part in the movie. She was kind of trying to put this behind her. And somehow along the line, we created this paradigm of the, the last final girl dies at the beginning of the next movie. A lot of the gore was cut out of this film. The MPAA was very angry at the first movie. They felt like they'd been swindled by allowing that much gore. And so they cracked down hard. All right. Somebody has to say something. I think Vic and I talked about this a long for a long time. But Rich, what do you think about uh, Jason taking the pot off the burning, uh, the kettle <laughs> off of the burner there? <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure that I can totally read what his motivation is for it. Like uh, on one hand, I'd say that it's annoying him or it's drawing attention, but there's a certain gentleness with which he picks it up and moves it. It almost <laughs> seems considerate, you know, like, Oh, like don't want that. You know, don't want to unnecessarily let the water evaporate out of this thing. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I assume that it's in here as sort of a, a juxtaposition I, more than anything. I think that what they were doing was that they were using the, you know, the, the, the tea kettle for the sound effect it's, itself and seems like some sort of like inspired in the moment uh, addition on the, on the actor's part that they decided to, to keep in. But like, you know, I guess I appreciate the juxtaposition. It doesn't seem like it necessarily fits the rest of Jason's character very well, but it's a it's a moment. <laughs> Look, nobody yeah, the sound of a screaming tea kettle. Okay, nobody. Not even the backwoods killer. Yeah, it, it feels like an interesting creative choice to like just put that in the movie. You don't have to. You could have easily cut around it. But they make the choice to show that he he does that. We may never know if this was also the Jason who would actually turn the heat off after. Uh, I think that would have revealed a lot more about his character than we even get here. Because I agree, it's making a lot of noise. It's going to draw attention. It's annoying. Like, primarily, you might want to just decide to, to, to stop that sound. But if he turned the burner off, like, that would be really telling. <laughs> actually he puts a pan down on the burner and makes himself some eggs <laughs> definitely zombie like maggots in his face jason i don't think would have done that what we just watched that so. jason that jason would have poured the boiling water on her face while she was still dying <laughs> yeah that jason has integrity <laughs> okay well let's pause it while this young couple rush to the phone booth and uh don't watch the tow truck backing up to pull their their truck away i mean this scene is so meaningless but i feel like we could talk about it for like 10 minutes uh, <laughs> there's so many elements to this scene well, 
it's wild that it's not where these are minor characters, right? Yeah. Like, it's such a strange way to introduce this movie. You assume that these characters are going to be sort of meaningful or that this might even be the final girl. But no, like, she's not going to show up for another 15 minutes. Uh, Structurally, this movie is very strange, but I think it works to its advantage. The things that happen don't follow, uh, whether, whether by accident or design, the expected sort of story beats that Robert McKee would would teach you to do. And I think it works to the film's advantage. Like, it, it keeps you on your toes. It keeps you off balance. Well, less than 10 minutes, 10 months after the uh, original film came out, apparently the mandate was... Let's do the same movie. Essentially, this is a remake of the first movie, but Miner's idea was faster, scarier, more fun. You can see the sort of DNA of just copying the first movie in that I believe we meet that girl, Annie, I think is her name, who is on her way to the camp and she hitches a ride with a guy and she's the first victim in Friday the 13th, the 1980 original. And then we meet uh, Alice after that. So just like play-by-play, blueprint, dot-to-dot, this is kind of following that, though they don't die immediately, this couple, at all. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of ways that you can just read this, this script. Like, oh, people opening the camp again. All of the like basic structural elements of, of of the script, other than the who done it aspect, are are pretty much the same <laughs> from the first movie. As we've talked about in the past with the the slasher film genre, the abandoning of the who done it is one of the things that elevates this above the first one. I mean, amongst many many other things, but it's I really as we went through this genre, like jeez. I no. no longer want to find out that that uh, the Billy's mom was the the killer. I hate that whodunit thing, and I understand that it's like a critical part of Giallo. Mm-hmm. But why did slasher movies? That was a revelation to for me as well as we watched all of those over the last year, year and a half, or however long it's been. Is that so many of so many of them want to play that game with the audience of the who done it. And I understand it brings some narrative complication and there's a mystery for the audience to solve and it gives you some latitude with what what you show and don't show that that that's the appeal to the filmmakers. But it's interesting that like the archetypal slasher killers, none of the best movies were the best killers are whodunit bad guys or movies, right? Like, none of my favorite slasher movies are follow the whodunit paradigm. Well, I, I think you're just witnessing an evolution, right? You you're, you watched one genre that was birthed out of another genre. Like, it just turns out that, that slasher films were just sort of, like, poorly executed whodunits. The Giallo who done it agatha christie thing that part of the the genre's dna maybe it gave you some cheap intrigue and cheap misdirections 
but it rarely produced a film that was a, a classic of of the subgenre for whatever reason. Let's hit play, but before we do, I will point out, I'm sure you guys are aware, I'm sure our audience is aware, but this girl who plays Sandra is 17. And what I didn't know until today when we record this, but that Vicky, who we'll meet later, was also 17. So this production has two underaged actresses in it. They were completely unaware of it until they edited the film. And apparently the sex scene between Sandra and her boyfriend involved a full frontal shot, like lots of nudity. And then they like burned the footage when they realized, oh, my God, we can't, you know, show this 17 year old girl naked. So just back to the concept of what a fly by night seat of your pants production this was. They had two actresses in pretty sexual roles that they didn't realize were 17. Sandra also played by uh, Broadway legend Andrea Martin. Sorry, that's a joke, obviously. That was a callback. You know, (laughs) I knew I was going to get Vic talking about Andrea Martin. I did not (laughs) expect it would be in this film. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but you came through, buddy. All right, thank you. Oh, man. But yeah, no, I mean, this actress did go on to have somewhat of a career and then she became a unfortunately she had a a drug problem and uh, life has been pretty rough for her from what I understand. Okay, let's hit play and we're about to see Crazy Ralph show up here in a minute. They're talking to Ted on the phone and... He's going to we're going to talk about Ted plenty. I'm sure he's going to give them directions why they don't have directions yet. I don't know. But and then Crazy Ralph just shows up. We don't get the benefit of his uh, voice performance here, but I think he says you're all doomed in a kind of an understated way here. I sort of like it. He's got a great look. I mean, he's well cast just for his kind of face and countenance and stuff. Uh, I have some problems with him. I feel like he's kind of the... He he feels like he's an extra from a 1970s... Not an extra, a small part from a 1970s TV show. Like, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre version of this guy was way more authentic. And just as unhelpful. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> oh, this is one of my favorite scenes where... Um, I forget our guy's name here, cut rate, cut rate Kevin Bacon. Let's pause it because I, I, I do want to give the guy a little bit of credit. Um, apparently, he was um, up for a lot of the same roles as Kevin Bacon, and they were friends. And when Kevin Bacon got the first movie, he was like, oh, yeah, oh, that's cool. And then, of course, when they were going to make the second one, they're like, well, you know, we can't use him again, but his buddy is pretty similar. So that's kind of why he's in this movie. But do you see, did you guys notice how like his rage here is like really uh, convincing as he's banging on the tow truck driver's window and everything? Um, like he's not just sort of phoning in this performance. He's kind of scary. 
Yeah, this could be his big break. <laughs> he's the character Jeffrey. And he's oh, Bill Randolph. Thank you. Um, Bill Randolph. He was also in Dressed to Kill. Mm, just a year yeah. earlier. And his IMDb picture is him talking on the phone with Sandra um, at the the scene we just watched. But I think he's kind of tapping into this universal rage here of uh, of getting your your car towed, and uh, we you know we can all put ourselves there as an actor to kind of relate to the system fucking you over. And I do like that the guy never looks at him at all as he's driving. He he doesn't even turn his head as Bill Randolph is banging on the on the window. Is that the first time that this tow truck driver has had this issue? He found the truth in his scene. Oh, by the way, the tow truck driver is the stunt coordinator, uh, for what it's worth. Yeah. And the fact that this is all Ted's elaborate practical joke does kind of amuse me. And Ted was waiting like 500 yards away from the gas station that they called him from. Ted's playing three-dimensional chess here. He knew that they were going to stop their car and walk away long enough that he hired a tow truck in advance to be there to take the car away. (laughs) I feel like Ted is the the prototypical Shelly, right? Like he's the first, he's the first character in the movie where you're like, oh, I can't wait to see this fucking guy get killed. (laughs) Well, I mean, he keeps going the idea that each one of these movies has the odd bird jokester guy. There's no doubt. Like the first one had one. This is this is this movie's, and then we get Shelley uh, in three. The fact that Ted survives this movie is just a mind blower, right? He's just not around for Act Three. <laughs> Once again, that's another short film. Like Ted shows up to the campground. <laughs> yeah. Right after everything goes down, it's like shit. Where is everybody? By the way, one of the things as as we let this play that this movie does is like there's a lot of like juvenile jokes that I definitely grew up with and was telling as a kid. And, the you know, the rabbit and the bear shitting in the woods. That's totally the frog in the blender. Like this movie captures the sort of the zeitgeist of dumb jokes that kids would tell each other between like 1980 and 1990. So I just told my nine-year-old son the frog in the blender joke. Uh, it turns out he's he's sort of obsessed with frogs. So when I when I hit the punchline, I laughed, and he leaned forward in his seat. We were in the car. He leaned forward in his seat, and he said, "You take that back right now." <laughs> <laughs> wow, cruelty to frogs. Yeah, not. So it's a little on the nose. We find this like. Right after, yeah, let's actually pause it because this this scene is is pretty weird if you if you think about it. There's a a big you know branch of a tree blocking the road that clearly didn't just fall. Somebody must have pulled this branch to block the road. Now nobody gets murdered here, but as they're sort of dealing with the towing this tree limb, it's, not, it's more of a limb than a branch, out of the way. Um, Marta Kober is the actress playing Sandra. She finds this artifact 
kind of on the nose artifact of, of Camp Blood being the the sign, the Camp Crystal Lake sign. It happens to be sitting there and we're about to see that Jason is hanging around watching them. So what do you guys think is going on here? Did Jason like create this sort of ambush, you know, like this is something highway men would do to get you to pull over and then they rob you, they attack you. But Jason doesn't attack them. Well, A, I think you you don't attack when there's like three people. Like my sense is if you if you go back to your theory of, of territoriality, uh Jaws reference there, everybody look it up. Uh if you go back to John's theory of territoriality, that this is what he's done as like anybody who's coming near my camp. I want them to stop. I want them to get out. I want to get a look at them. I want to know who it is. I want to know why they're here. And so he gets this chance to look at them. Now, do we, I, I, I apologize because I don't have this in my notes. Is it confirmed that Jason is the one watching them in the shot? We get some POV shots that turn out to be from Crazy Ralph. And that's one of the ways in which this movie plays with that POV camera. I think we're going to see his pants coming up here. Like we see the shoes in the pants and they're going to be consistent. Again, you may be right, but I'm just saying it's, it's one of the things to watch as we go through these early scenes, mm-hmm. the ways in which the, uh, we've already seen it with the, the shower scene, the ways in which minor plays with the POV camera as a way of creating tension. Maybe it's Jason, uh-huh. maybe it's not, but he really plays with it. And again, there's some that, that it is, uh, it does turn out to be crazy. Route. Oh, you're quite right. There's a ton of POVs in this movie that are not Jason that we find out. Absolutely. But let's, for the sake of argument, and then we'll confirm it, let's assume that Jason did set this up, unless you don't think he did. Yeah. What's going on? Why? What was he doing here? Well, like I said, I, th- I think it's a way to scope out people that are coming near his territory. I can get behind that. Rich, what are your thoughts? I mean, first of all, you see perspective from all sorts of characters. I mean, it's crazy. Ralph, you see it with other campers, uh, you know, yep. seeing that's, that's upcoming. Nothing can be assumed unless it's like you're saying, we're actually seeing the, the pant legs. Or maybe our costume designer's pant legs. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, I mean, here's what I'll say. No one else has that. Like, if, if you presume that the person watching them also laid this obstacle you have no reason to believe that anyone else has the motivation to lay an obstacle in the road. So, you know, I don't even know that Jason even necessarily has the motivation, but he would be the most motivated. So it's like, I don't know who else I would try to explain to you that, that this is. Right. You know, further, I'd say that every time there is a scene where you're getting a point of view and it's presumably not Jason, it's usually revealed as a misdirect. Um, and that's just kind of like the underlying tension of the scene. So I'd say that by not revealing who the POV is, we can naturally assume that it's Jason. Like, he's your default. Yes, I, I, I agree with that. I think whenever it's not Jason, we get some confirmation thereof afterwards. Again, this is another layer of what makes this Jason interesting, is that he would contrive this odd little roadblock scenario which no other jason would ever do whether it makes sense or you know vic is reading into it and i can kind of get behind that as as far as his psychology or his strategy um but it's not 
in the normal playbook for Jason to do this. It does add like a level of complication, complexity, forethought that we don't normally get from the character. It's not, you know, he's not playing chess, but it it definitely is a game. And he plays games with the characters in this movie that I guess are more like Michael Myers, I would say. We're going to actually with these two characters later when he after he kills them, he hides in their bed that they were having sex in. And he pulls the sheet up over himself and a la Michael with the sheet in the first Halloween. And then when Vicky comes in and he, you know, rises up from the bed, that's that's playing a game with the victims that Jason doesn't normally play. Like there's a subtlety, a psychological aspect to that that you don't normally get from Jason. And we get from Ted is sort of like. I don't want to talk about this sign. I don't want to talk about Camp Blood. Not before lunch. You know, he's like a little creeped out by it that she finds this uh, Camp Crystal Lake sign. And now, okay, here we've got the POV and a hand and obviously a male hand and the flannel shirt pulling some undergrowth away. Yeah, as Vic said, maybe he didn't want to take on all three of them. Maybe he's just, you know, it's recon. And now we meet Paul, our um, somewhat heroic male lead. He he has some assholeish moments, but he's he's clearly the leader of our campers because he's running this. This is all a camp counselor training retreat. And our other leads all sort of introduce themselves as he rings the dinner bell and suddenly we we have a hand okay this is one of those misdirections we have the male hand pushing the leaves away but this time it's this pervy dude who's gonna slingshot terry in the ass and she's not entirely angry about it because they have this sort of flirtation going it's also like this is one of the the cliches of the genre right Terry's whole character is that she is hot and she's going to, she's going to dress very skimpily. And at some point she's going to take off her clothes. Well, she also likes her dog a lot though. Oh, it's true. It's true. And she has a dog. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. It's uh, it's unfortunate that there was no one around for her to say to, Oh my God, I want to go swimming, but I don't have my swimsuit. (laughs) Yeah. I did think of you when that happened, Vic, when I watched this again. And we finally meet our, our true protagonist as the Volkswagen bug that would have looked great under a tarp in Texas comes up the country lane. And she doesn't run Crazy Ralph off the road, but the car backfires and kind of scares him. He has this sad look as he watches her go. Ralph's a little understated, I think, in, in this movie. I kind of like it. All right, let's pause it here because we get in this whole speech that uh, Paul gives his counselors in training. And there's a a lot we could touch on. We don't have to. But one thing that I thought was sort of interesting at the moment we paused it, and we can double back a bit. 
but they're justifying the presence of weapons and things on the camp because like his idea is we're going back to basics and it's survival and archery and you know things that might justify the presence of actually nobody uses a bow in this film but we have a chainsaw and we have machete and, and and stuff like that so his his survival style serves to sell some of the items that we have around here and the other thing that he touches on is that these are like hardened camp counselors they've obviously worked multiple seasons often together like all of them have worked together for a season or two in different places different camps they're sort of the creme de la creme of of camp counselors i guess I think you're really overselling them, John. <laughs> they're like the, they're like the colonial marines of camp counselors. <laughs> yeah, they feel totally ready for this mission, but they're not. <laughs> they're not. No. Jenny's arrival here is something else that sort of became cliched. I mean, I remember specifically the final girls, right? Like that was. The, the girl who was supposed to be the final girl shows up super late in like a black Mustang. Like it's like the car that attracts a lot of attention and she sort of doesn't fit with the rest of the group a little bit, but just not because she, you know, just because she's quirky, I guess. Uh, and that's, this car is sort of emblematic of that. Absolutely. I see the parallel. I see the parallel. Um, We'll have lots of time to talk about Ginny, but uh, I think she she makes a, a solid entrance here. Of course, establishing that her car is unreliable. At least they make the effort to explain why it won't start at some critical juncture later. Hmm. It's kind of funny. Like We don't know their relationship at first when Paul comes and he's kind of mad at Ginny for being late and everything. We get it pretty quickly, but it's sort of in degrees that you realize she's not just his assistant. Like he kind of sequesters her like, off into it, have a private conversation right away, and he's angry. You know, he's kind of a dick about it. She should have been here hours ago. Everyone else was. But she's also everything about her is like kind of sly cute smiles like she knows he's not yes either she knows he's not really mad or she knows that she can tickle his balls and he won't be mad anymore i think you're onto something there crudely put but i think he's um (laughs) she's she's manipulating him you know effortlessly and that's relevant to the film also john these two shots you can't see what's happening below the waist i'm just saying I mean, she's sort of in an innocent way to get herself out of trouble, but she's playing him like a fiddle. And when he says he was worried about her, and she's like, bullshit, Paul. Like, you know that she's discerning as well. She's not, she's not manipulative. You can't manipulate her, but she will manipulate you, is the takeaway of this scene. And we get into pretty quickly here about the bears. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're not the only people to point out the uh, number of bear references in in these films and you somehow never get a bear in in a friday the 13th movie which is unfortunate true okay this whole bit about the um okay yeah pause it pause it i pause it on the exact moment where vicky nudges terry 
when he's talking about the menstrual blood thing. So he he says basically, you ladies be um, tidy with your, you know, when it's that time of the month, or the bears will um, pick up on it. And there's this beat where Vicky nudges Terry like, you know what he's talking about. And then Terry looks like kind of embarrassed and annoyed. And you're kind of like, what, what, what is going on here? Like, is Terry the one that has had a problem with this in the past or. (laughs) (laughs) Remember that time? (laughs) Yeah. I just don't understand what like the subtle communication between these two women is. I mean, it's not just like, oh, what a pig. It's more like they have a secret. It's how I I read it. It's just like it's just like it's like girl stuff, you know. I'm gonna just just take this opportunity to tell all of our listeners: if you haven't, look up the trailer for Cocaine Bear. (laughs) Oh God. (laughs) I, I can only assume that this will somehow translate to a scene in that movie. God, I, I, I really hope so. I like that when Paul does that whole keep clean with your menstrual cycle thing, like you can hear his reticence in saying it. He He's not like, you know, glorifying in his power to talk about this or something. He, he feels like it's something you got to cover in this job, which does seem weird. I want to point out at this at this juncture that I think you can tell he can be a bit of a dick and we're going to see that. I mean, I think he has a lot of good qualities, but Paul is, I'm not going to say full of himself, but I think he kind of enjoys leading everyone, you know, like being, being the authority figure. That's, that's my takeaway. I think that's true, but I'm going to say for an eighties kind of pretty boy, I think Paul winds up being pretty cool. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll get to it, but you know, Billy Zabka never had a part like this. John Fury uh, does does a great job here. All right. Well, I'm watching the car trouble that Ginny is having. And Paul says, use some of that child psychology you're majoring in. Oh, that's not setting up anything. Yeah, subtle. Yeah. <laughs> and he doesn't do anything. He just opens the trunk and she backfires on him. And I, I think that I'm reading this as she knows her car. That sounds like such a euphemism. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> but I think she is doing it on purpose. I, I, I think she's fucking with him. That was, that was, that was my read as well. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it helps us believe that she's going to be a, one of the more famously resourceful and clever final girls in this whole subgenre which isn't necessarily the boldest statement ever, but I've probably said she has my vote for the best final girl ever. And uh, this is all part of it. I'm just saying I've opened the trunk and had a girl backfire on me before. (laughs) I think Paul and I made the same face. (laughs) Oh boy. All right. So we've got the campfire tale. Let's let's pause it as uh, Paul is loosening up, but he's using his authoritative persona to his advantage uh, to set up a scare as he he's playing it straight, 
but he's in on the joke that will be pulled on these uh, counselors momentarily. I don't necessarily need to dissect his version of the story, but did you guys have any thoughts about... He he gives the sort of creation myth for Jason here. It just further treads on the seven minutes of backstory that we got at the right. beginning of it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I I do feel like it's an especially uh, indelible staging that they that they have. I know that it is by no means like breaking the mold, but like you've definitely seen this this setup in several other films where you have all the, the campers gathered around the campfire. And this one is just like well composed. I mean, honestly, like people are just like sort of like nicely, like, like leveled and staggered around him. I feel like when I've seen this, you know, scene aped in parodies and, and Scooby-Doo, like this seems to be the one that it's almost based off of the burning, which we mentioned, then it also had a very similar, you know, kind of like, let's sit down and, and tell the tale. But this one almost seems like kind of the original on, on which the others were based. I agree with that. It's pretty flawlessly executed. Again, in the sense that we think that this guy is by the book, and he's like, he says, I'm going to give it to you straight about Jason. And like, he's just telling you what you need to know so that you understand the context but he's actually winding them up and he's setting up a scare. And that's like a kind of a level of complexity you don't see from this kind of sequence very often, but it is masterfully executed and effective. And it does give you, yeah, I think it's very debatable as, as Vic pointed out, do we need any of this information? But it does kind of create something we've talked about the idea of like these guys are tapping into an urban legend. This is the first time we really get that for Jason, that it's the man with the hook for a hand or the story that takes on a larger than life element that really you can see in a lot of horror genres, like Candyman clearly is one of the biggest examples, but that there's a, a tale that accompanies this this thing that is more real than people want to acknowledge. Well, and I would argue, John, that it's not that this scene isn't necessary. It's that the opening flashback isn't necessary. I'd much rather get this information here than just rewatch yes. the last the last fifteen minutes of the first Friday the Thirteenth. You know? Yeah, I mean, I I think I'm glad you you mentioned that because. If we just excise that and had the rest of the Adrian King Alice open, it really is like just a, a strange question of its uh, or sign of the times that somehow people. I have heard this discussed in the in the context that there weren't sequels back then. Yeah, it was like there, there's the Godfather Part Two, but um, there were not like franchises and sequels it was very rare in 1981 star wars empire strikes back the godfather but like you can probably count on one hand the number of sequels and franchises 
in that period. So maybe they just weren't giving the audience enough credit. Yeah, I mean, I think that's it, right? Is if you if you just assumed that the audience knew what they were getting into, it really would have made this a tighter, more interesting movie in addition to glossing over some of the logical issues that we've talked about. Uh, and yeah. I think also would have made that first scene much, I mean, which is already very effective, but I think it would have made it much more effective. Agreed. I think Jaws 2 was around here as well. So, yeah, but very handful of sequels. Okay. So he's talking about she disappeared two months later. He is contextualizing what happened to Alice in regards to this sequence. So Jason apparently disappeared her body. Like, uh, he didn't, he took her with him, which is creepy. On the bus. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oh, if you thought the head was difficult. <laughs> you get the head in one hand, it's like weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and he did just said, like, revenge if you enter his wilderness. So we're we're very clearly getting the territorial aspect of this. Five years dormant. But now he gets kind of off the reservation, talking about him being hungry and he's out there and thirst for blood or something, watching... That doesn't make a ton of sense other than like very clearly indicating you cross this line, you're in trouble. Thirsty for young blood. Yeah, he's just messing around now. And then Ted appears in this like caveman costume, this mask and loinclothy thing. This apparently this spear that he has. Uh, it looks fake, but it's a it's a real spear because it kills two of these people and goes through a bed and a box spring and buries itself in the floor. So Ted's spear is not to be fucked with. What camping activity is that associated with? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it's more of a directorial prank. It was like the guitar in the Hateful Eight. Like that's it's actually a it's a museum artifact. That was being put in here just to elicit an emotional response. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yes. The guy in the wheelchair, Mark, I believe. Let's pause it and talk about him a little bit. I did not know when we previously talked about this film that Tom McBride, yeah, is the actor, and he. Vicky, actually, uh, Lauren Marie Taylor, the actress playing Vicky, who just like locks onto this dude with a tractor beam of attraction from the second they share a frame, uh, which we could talk about. Like, it's kind of semi creepy how she treats him like uh, he's a pop star and she's a adoring groupie rather than um, like an organic flirtation that starts from nothing but putting that aside for now she actually hit on him in real life and he said uh you know basically sorry i'm gay and he was uh the first member of any cast of friday the 13th movie to die um due to aids actually as it as it turned out which is sad but he's a very interesting this mark character an unusual character in a slasher film. And I know Mike had a tremendous affection for this guy. 
the obvious conversation we must at least briefly have is that we have two characters in these final four in wheelchairs and uh franklin is like this sort of whiny self-pitying childish guy and the other side of the coin is mark who's you know just sort of doggedly intrepid about walking again and he he says a couple of sort of semi self-pitying things along the line but seems to you know be pretty well adjusted at peace with himself and his situation i would like to see him and franklin in in some sort of fight <laughs> that would be short yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um no i mean you're right i mean they are they are sort of flip sides of how characters with disabilities can be treated in films. But there's a sense in which I would argue that Franklin's is almost more honest. Yeah. I mean, I think we talked about that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. This guy is treated very, you're right. We did, we did talk about it, but yes, this guy is treated very much as a paragon of, you know, strength and perseverance. It works for me because I actually really buy the relationship and I buy uh, her affection for him, uh, Vicky's affection for him, that sort of makes it work for me. Because look, it's we're setting up, and if you notice in these early scenes, I mean, look, we're almost thirty minutes into the film, right? Nobody's been killed for, except obviously for uh, the uh, what's her face at the beginning, Alice. Alice. Yeah, Alice at the beginning. Um, so nobody's been killed. All we're doing is setting up the relationships. The creepy guy that's into Terry, and then. Vicky is into Tom McBride and Paul and Jenny and, and what's going on with them. It's a lot of work sort of setting all these things up. And it really does. Like it's everybody gets their, you know, five minutes. And do you buy it or do you not? And if you buy it, then you care. And I actually buy it and I care about Vicky and Mark. You know, I buy it and I care about Paul and Jenny. Uh, I less so about scott and terry but that's right. probably why they died first. i don't know <laughs> yeah scott yeah. is kind of a reprehensible character but yeah. uh rich what do you think i mean in terms of the comparison to franklin i mean like i don't know i guess i'd say that like the mark character is less defined by his circumstances that's easy to do when you're like a square jawed athletic dude versus you know right. so i'd almost say that like that is the you know like there's a there's a different kind of physicality that's not based on a wheelchair that's also like playing a, into this this part of it you're right i find that uh it's it's also interesting that this is somewhat incidental but it's like he was born in 52 so it's like as an actor like he's almost 30 in this role I'd say, like, overall, his read is, like, pretty, you know, mature, um, especially for the cast yeah. of characters that you're dealing with here. And I think that that comes across overall in terms of his worldview. All, all that kind of plays into the character differences. Yeah, it's just interesting also, like, in a vacuum, the, the typical gender roles are reversed with this pairing in that he's kind of playing hard to get, but is sort of open to it. And she's like clearly the aggressor, which I think you know nobody should um, disparage as a as a dynamic. It's certainly uh, refreshing and more than valid that 
in this scenario, like she's just like relentlessly hitting on this dude, even though that's not the traditional uh, classical dynamic, certainly that we see in movies. Like on some level, I think there's room to question if you want to get really granular here. Like if they had survived, would he have to worry about this girl (laughs) a week from now? Uh, you know like is she glomming onto him real hard and he's not necessarily i'm not saying he's casual about it but like there you don't get the sense that he's nearly as into her as she's into him right but once they have sex tonight like what happens after that i i don't know it's something that is relatable because this happens in real life i've been him in the situation but usually you're the pursuer uh as as the guy and it's it's just like i i do really appreciate that this movie versus like scott and terry which is like the typical dog drooling chasing the the hot girl kind of a, a dynamic and we've flip-flopped that and on top of it like she's attractive he's attractive but he happens to be in a wheelchair that shifts the paradigm like that's not like the typical you would think this girl would be throwing herself at him Uh, it all is kind of interesting and refreshing and i can't think of ever having seen this particular dynamic in any other movie in any genre so i like it John, I like how you were able to throw in there that, that you've been aggressively pursued by a uh, <laughs> You know, in my younger days, Vic, in my younger days. Yeah. <laughs> this is how you know that John's wife doesn't listen to the podcast. <laughs> All right. Shall we hit play? Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sort of panning around the room and oh man he pops that collar scott he's he's in chopping mall by the way this guy and this is the the much more traditional like like this is very much what we're going to see in friday the 13th part four you know of uh-huh. this guy sort of desperately pursuing this girl yeah this is a time shop worn dynamic although you see that she's like vaguely charmed by him oh yeah it's like she's not really into it, but I, I kind of get the sense from Terry that, like, she probably wants to hook up with somebody and, you know, this guy's putting in the work. The Cinema Sins show pointed out, like, I, I did not, like, pause it and look at this chessboard, but it's actually really funny if you analyze it. So he has his two rooks have never moved. Every other piece has moved. And the king is, like, halfway across the board. <laughs> like, for some reason, he moved his king halfway across the board. And then he doesn't know, like, he's going to move his knight or something. Yeah. And she takes the knight with the queen, and then he's in checkmate. So this is not exactly the Gary Kasparov level <laughs> chess <laughs> from, 
<laughs> from Paul. <laughs> and he kind of frowns at the board. He's like, what? How did you do that? <laughs> yeah. And obviously, like, let's not put too fine a point on it. This whole beat is to, in capital letters, tell the audience, she's smart. <laughs> and that will be relevant uh, later for Ginny. And so, you know, could it have been executed a little less clunkily? Yes. But um, it is part of the mystique of, of Ginny. So I'm, I'm on board. We also just prior to this too, we got one of those POV shots that I think John is the the one I was thinking of that isn't actually from Jason, is actually from Crazy Ralph. Uh, but yeah. again, that that Miner is is using the camera, using that idea of the POV that we use to create tension, but he is it's not always indicative of the killer. Sometimes it's and which I think is not something you get in Halloween there when you get the POV, it's always Michael Myers POV. He's using it as a game to create tension, even when Jason's not around. And he does like play it straight at sometimes. I know I like, I don't recall the shot you're referring to, but we see that the shadow of the POV has a hat. And so obviously it's crazy Ralph in one of those. Never seen Jason's head at this point. He could have a hat. <laughs> You know, the shot that I'm referring to soon thereafter, we actually see Crazy Ralph. Scott and Crazy Ralph uh, account for some of the voyeuristic shots that we get. And at a certain point, it it does go all Jason. Yeah, in the early going, he is kind of having uh, fun with this idea that it could be someone else. And one of the times that it switches to Jason, you see that silhouette right after and you can clearly see that the guy is wearing a bag on his head before we reveal that jason is actually wearing a bag on his head which is cool i i think a hat would really help on the bus just don't that <laughs> yeah i think a hat, a hat. Would be the bag. <laughs> maybe if it was like a you know one of those seed caps like a john deere kind of a hat People will be like, yeah, uh, another weird farmer. He's wearing overalls, right? So they might just shrug that one off. Earlier, Amy Steele's Ginny said, the second act needs work, which is another kind of clue that she's meta and, and thinks about things on a level that most of these characters don't. The guy, Scott, I, I didn't say before, um, where he says, like, I'm striking out all over the place. He definitely seems like an L.A. actor to me, not like one of the real East Coast kids that we get in a sleepaway camp or something like that. John, I had the same note about the second act needs work. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad you pointed that out because I, I forgot to mention it. All right. So, yeah, where we are um, about to hit play and Paul is grimacing, I couldn't be sure. And I don't know exactly what frame you're on, but he grimaces when she says she's going to bed or he's just reflecting on his loss at chess. I'm not sure which. Maybe a little both. I think just the chess. I think that the, the losing at chess cost him his erection. That, that checks out, uh, especially when we see where it goes from here. And we're going to watch Ginny uh, go change her shirt. There's no reason to watch this at all narratively and i know i'm ahead 
of what you should be looking at. Wait, did you even hit play? Sorry. <laughs> okay. Let's, uh, yeah, let's go ahead. She says, good night, Paul. See you in the morning. Sandra and her boyfriend, whose name I always forget, are dancing like Ed Harris in Creepshow. Jenny puts on her sweatshirt to walk 20 feet to her cabin. She has a giant flashlight. Oh, yeah, and Sandra... that flashlight was a trumpet. Yeah. (laughs) It's enormous. We're laying groundwork that Sandra is just like, I have to see Camp Blood. She will not be denied. They're going to go see Camp Blood. And we'll get back to that. Ginny goes into her cabin for no obvious reason. She takes off of her, her, her clothes and she's got a bra on underneath. She's looking at herself in the mirror. She puts on something else. And it's just like, why Why is this important? Why are we watching this? Like, this has nothing to do with anything. But then you semi-justify it by the... There's the there's the shadow of the hat moving past the front of it that she's being observed. And the idea is that any POV voyeuristic thing, you just happen to see whatever those characters are doing when they're being watched. And that might be taking their shirt off. But the reason we're showing it is because they're being watched. That's the cinematic justification for this. Well, at least they tried. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And somehow Paul has gotten into the cabin, gives her a little jump scare. They get romantic and kiss passionately. And we get one of the, the little unfinished Easter eggs of the film but I'll mention that in a minute because she hasn't said it yet. We see pant legs walking around, but I'm pretty sure this is Crazy Ralph. Oh, pant, pant legs was Jason's original character name. <laughs> <laughs> totally. On, on that um, You're All Doomed podcast, they just call him Baggy Pants until <laughs> you actually see him. <laughs> and we pan up the body of the peeping tom and it is crazy ralph crazy ralph has taken a dark turn here because this isn't about keeping kids off the camp there's no justification for for what he's doing he looks crazier than before too and i think that helps to justify what he's doing at this point all right let's pause it on crazy ralph's death scene which is obviously as others have pointed out implausible on a lot of levels i'm watching it i I paused it on jason's hands are on par on the same level as crazy ralph's ears which suggests that his hips are at the level of crazy ralph's ears now crazy ralph is standing and he's not a short man unless you can do some mental gymnastics to justify this jason is about three feet taller than Crazy Ralph (laughs) to be garroting garroting him with barbed wire in this way around this tree. We see Jason plenty in, in context of other characters throughout the film. He is not that tall. So what the hell is going on here? I I think that there are actually several instances throughout the series overall that implies that Jason has an intern with an apple box (laughs) (laughs) who is at his beck and call. 
you know, they could have sold this to me. Like it would be easily solved if on the other side of that tree is, you know, like a thick root that's going into the ground that is elevated, you know, from the ground, like by a foot or two. And that the idea is he's standing on the roots or a rock or anything else on the other side of that tree. But the, the cinematic geography, the grammar of this sequence is totally absurd. I heard that Jason was played in the early scenes in this film by Kevin Peter Hall. And <laughs> ironically replaced with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Oh, <laughs> and it nice was little, determined that he was too tall. Yeah. Nice little predator joke there. Yeah. Uh, very nice. <laughs> yeah, it, it is kind of funny, though, that Jason sees Ralph peeping Tomming. His reaction is just to roll up on him ninja style <laughs> and, <laughs> and and take him out. It's also like it's not a very big tree. Like he would have no. had to have been on the other side of it for a long time. Like it's not <laughs> like he could creep up behind it. Crazy Ralph was just peering around this tree, did not see Jason, turns around, and that's when Jason makes yeah. his move. It's a smarmy but sophisticated kill, not unlike the, the mafia description you had earlier. Like, this is not a very Jason uh-huh. Voorhees style of weapon. This is more of a trained killer's weapon. Exactly. The, the question I would pose is, as we delve into Jason's psychology... Is he is he killing Crazy Ralph because he's peeping on them? Like, is this regarded as irresponsible behavior? I'm not necessarily going to embrace the idea that Allah the Killer and Silent Night, Deadly Night, everything that's going through Jason's mind is punish, you know, because he's identifying wrongdoers. And, you know, if your behavior, if you had, the punishment's got to fit the crime. And if you don't do the crime, you don't got to do the time. I'm not going to go that far based on what we know about this character that like if crazy Ralph was uh, doing a crossword puzzle behind this tree, he'd be like, Oh no, you're, you're good, but you're peeping. So um, gotta, gotta take you out. I'm not going to go that far, but he has not committed crimes until now for like this period of, of five years, whether it's just like, yeah, I, I think I'm just going to write it off to nobody should be here. Whatever you're doing, I don't care. Like it, it, it's not the, the subtlety of it isn't dude, you shouldn't be jerking off looking at these, at this couple. I'm not to say that crazy Ralph is literally jerking off, but you know what I mean? <laughs> he could be. nobody wants to think about that yeah (laughs) nobody wants to think about that he's trespassing they're all sort of trespassing and that's the yes the violation here he kind of does you know warrants his death with like he's gone he's crossed a line here he's gone beyond like uh just the oracle of doom to something worse and and darker and not justifiable also, they they frame these medium close-ups, John, just so you can't see what's happening. 
below the waist. So yeah, maybe it's jerking off. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like I feel like Steve Miner's giving us a lot of leeway to fill in the uh, what's what's happening uh, below the camera. Yeah, read between the lines. Below the frame. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So goodbye, Crazy Ralph. We flash to white. That's a, a sort of a signature of this film. After kills, we'll see it again. Cut to Ginny uh, waking up in the morning. She's in bed, and she finds <laughs> scrawled in lipstick on the mirror, beware of bears. <laughs> now all the counselors are on a run. Ginny's leading the way. Mark and Paul are on the sidelines, cheering them on. This sort of eerie segue to a POV in the woods. I can honestly say I've been uh, both a camper and a camp counselor and never had to jog. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure where they're they're getting that. Now we're on the trail. I'm sure that's more recognizable to you. Avoiding poison ivy and stuff. POV shot. They're being observed. And Jenny, like like Billy in Predator, has a weird sense that she's being watched. Yes. <laughs> but we, we don't get that weird rattlesnake soundtrack. Uh, <laughs> but we do get a dog. Yeah. We do get Muffin scampering along by herself. And she... Unlike the kids running into Jason or Michael on the street, apparently she doesn't make it out because we cut to hot dogs on the grill, which I do find like a very fun and clever transition. I I know it's obvious, but I appreciate the cut to the hot dogs on the grill. If only Muffin had come to my yard, I would have taken her in and Terry could have come and gotten her several hours later. We've established that, yes. She would just join the uh, cavalcade of dogs that are routinely <laughs> prancing around the the wheat ranch. <laughs> it's been pointed out that Terry looking for Muffin gazes directly into the camera. So if she's seeing the point of view, she would be looking this guy in the eye. Chainsaw in hand. Ginny goes back into her cabin and stows it on a shelf in a closet, which is definitely the safest place you can put a chainsaw in a campground. And she senses a POV as well. This kind of stares into the camera. And now we cut to a beach scene where everyone is loose and relaxed and trading more childish jokes. But we get this camp blood thing with Sandra again, where she's just obsessed and... She does say, I want to go back to the city and tell everyone we were there. And and I, that clicked with me motivationally. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's like social media. Yeah. You know, like back then, this is how you you you, you proved that you, you did something cool and it got you credibility with your social circles. So now I'm behind it 100%. <laughs> <laughs> the dynamic between these two, who are not terribly well-developed characters or anything. But you can see that she kind of wears the pants in this relationship. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, he he's just trying to make her happy. Yeah. He he has no real desire to go there to Camp Blood. But mm-hmm. Ginny does her frog in a blender joke and we get this 
Beethoven's bowel movement joke from good old Ted, and he's wearing this weird metal pith helmet for some reason. Vicky is disgusted. Back to Sandra and what's her boyfriend's name? God damn it. Yeah. I keep forgetting. Jeff. Okay. That that, that works. That fits. Yeah. The, the Jerry and this uh... <laughs> <laughs> Well, at least he doesn't look like he's ten well, I mean, he is ten years older than her, probably, but it, it doesn't look that glaring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it turns out that Jeff <laughs> Jeff should go to jail. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. Okay, baggy pants. Yes. Uh, I don't think we Jason can steal that from the podcast, Joe. <laughs> Copyright infringement. <laughs> the pants are baggy. Um, and so, yeah, lots of POVs watching them. But also, like, I there there is something, like, if Jason was actually standing there, like, it's absurd that they would walk past him without seeing him. <laughs> That's one of the big flaws of the POVs in this film. Yeah, like I was saying before, like, multiple times the actor actor just stares directly into the camera. It's either a POV or it's not. But if it's a POV, you're looking right at the dude. Okay, we see this uh, mangled dog carcass that they stumble across that I'm not going to pause it necessarily, but I thought we got a ribbon in the carcass. Are you guys... Yeah. Um, with me on that. Agree. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's clearly muffin. Yeah, tying it to muffin specifically. All right. Yeah. Let's pause it for a sec when we get to the deputy harassing Paul. And I, I actually really like this this scene. I think I, I was going to point out, like with the POV stuff there, that the way Jason, this Jason, peers between trees at that couple, it's hard to imagine the hockey mask Jason ever doing. Because he's basically hiding right there, like a stalker, like a voyeur. He could have killed them right there, right, if, if if those were POV shots. And the stalking feet that we see with the baggy pants is often, like, distinct from the, the POVs. Like, so much of the editing is confusing and contradictory in this movie. But my takeaway from that scene is that he just was choosing... He wasn't ready to kill them at that point. But if he was the like sort of mindless juggernaut tank zombie Jason, like there's no way he'd be sort of peering around trees at them like that. There's not a lot of there's not a false build up in latter Friday the thirteenth movies. Like as soon as you as you if you hear the music and you get the POV camera, like the the bloodshed is coming. But I would also yep. venture to say at this point, Jason must know that the cop is there. He clearly is aware of his his area and his territory. And also, is the, is the cop just like, is he staking it out? Yeah, why is he there to catch them? Nothing's happened for five years. Like, why would you be staking that out? That's a little implausible. Because yeah, uh, it leads to the next scene? <laughs> yeah. The proliferation of the POV shots I didn't really notice before. I, it, it does beg the question of like if the yeah if we presume that this really is Jason, I guess by the presence of the enlarged, I was gonna say enlarged pants, but maybe not. Um, <laughs> oversized pants. Um, generously sized. <laughs> generously sized. Yeah. <laughs> Relaxed fit. Um, <laughs> 
if it wasn't for the presence, the presence of those certainly implies that it is Jason. But it's like, does he know what his motivations are at this point? Is he, does he even like, it's, it's not like he's like waiting for the chance to kill. You know, is he waiting for like a reason to kill? Is he just being observational at this point? He doesn't really have any like designs on them in general. He's just sort of like observing two people who are in his orbit. I'm going to argue that there's a flaw in the script, which is that if he hadn't, we hadn't already had the scene with Crazy Ralph, you could make this case that Jason has his territory. He's hanging out here. He's aware of the other kids. He's not going to do anything until these two kids cross into his property. And that that's what triggers him to go on to this killing spree. But the fact that he's already been into their camp and killed Crazy Ralph sort of undermines that. I, I had that in my head when I was going into this as like, oh, like when you started talking about territorial, I was like, yeah, like that, I guess that sort of does make sense. But only if you play it out that way. And I think the way they, it, it seems like there's a lot of missed opportunities here. They could have made this movie make more sense. Um, yeah, I'm totally seeing your point that if the way it unfolded was this is the catalyst for Jason, the fact that they, you know, step over that fence and they're in the part of his land that nobody was violating before. And that like sets him off. That would make sense. But he was hanging out right outside of their dorms or whatever you want to call them their their cabins the night before and chose to only kill crazy ralph but clearly he was patrolling like the side of the lake that was not camp blood already in order to to kill crazy ralph so it does undermine any kind of logic of like why now you know what changes from the five years that he was dormant or or whatever well and you uh, think about all the all the preface that went into it don't go over there you're not allowed there i'm gonna go over there i want to check it out like you could really right. build a moment out of them coming up to this no trespassing sign and crossing over it having jason having those pov shots of him watching them and really making that where are we at in the movie here 38 minutes. If you cut out the crazy Ralph killing scene, you're at 35 minutes. You are dropping this right when it should go structurally to trigger Jason to then to then come back. Well, the cop does tell Holt that he's too close to Camp Blood. And the implication is that the trigger is simply setting up shop this close. And I, I can somewhat get behind that. That even though like they're not literally reopening the exact same camp, Paul bears some responsibility for the decision to do this. Like I think the cop says, like, couldn't you have, if you'd done it like the next county over, I would have been all for it. He's still sticking his head in the hornet's nest by initiating this so close to Jason's territory. So that's another way to think of it is that you're already. You're already fucked. The place that they're opening these cabins is still too close. So I guess that's I think that's what the movie's running with. And I and I and I, and I agree with you, but I'm saying you could have tied this story more directly into Jason's psychology. You could have you could yeah. have like just everything we're talking about. 
it wouldn't have been that hard to make this make more sense with just a couple of different changes. The and now granted, look, like we're talking about the setup. We're still essentially in the first act. We're just gotten past the first act. Obviously, it's understandable that there's some missteps because I think it, the, the film functions very well from this point on. As you said, I think this is a terrific scene, and I think it makes Paul's character very interesting. This uh, is my favorite Paul scene by far. Of course. But it is just it's hard to watch it at this point and be like, it, it feels like you're just like, oh, if you just tweaked this and this and, you know, dialed this knob just a little bit to the right, you, you really would have had a setup that felt more logical and reasonable and that we could get behind. It's a problem that you don't really have with even Texas Chainsaw Massacre with them looking for the Creek and finding the house and looking for gas. And certainly with black. Well, I mean, just a reminder, this script was probably written six months after the first movie hit theaters. You know, like this movie was in theaters 10 months after the first movie hit theater. So, yeah, to to say it's a rush job is an understatement. Yeah. Okay, let's hit play. So, yeah, you know, the cop is sort of doing his swinging dick routine and Paul, like, just coolly handles him. And, you know, the cop's saying, you've got a good reputation, but if I was you, I would have located in the next county. You're too close, as I was saying before. It's been quiet for five years. That's the way we want it. Well, it's a nice setup for Paul's character, too. Look, people say what you're doing with these kids is great. You've got a good reputation. Whatever other negative things there are about Paul, this scene, he comes out of the scene looking like a good person trying to do a good thing. And the kind of cool leadership thing when this cop is like wanting him to crack down on them and he's like, all right, Ginny, no dessert for them. And it just like perfectly puts the whole no seconds on dessert, like punishment levied, but he's not going to overreact because the cop is disapproving. Yeah, because teenagers did what he expects teenagers to do. Right. And he handles it in his own way. And, you know, they don't get to go to the bar and thus they die, actually, the way it plays out. So, yeah, let's let's watch this one last segment before we call it a night and break this thing into into two parts where the cop sees Baghead Jason run across the road and pursues him into the woods. Now, is the cop assuming that this is someone else trespassing into Camp Blood? Like, we don't have the geography down quite well enough to understand why the cop is really hauling ass deep into right. the woods. Well, I mean, I don't think he would do this just for another teenager. I, I think he suspected that there's that Jason actually exists. That That's my read on it. Not that he's as vigilant. He doesn't pull his gun, which, you know, sort of raises questions. But I don't think he'd be doing this just to grab another counselor. His whole thing was he, he's concerned that there's a real a legitimate risk at these people doing this, like yeah. opening this camp again. So I think he suspects Jason runs across the whole row. We only get a glimpse of him, but I think he has to see the guy he's chasing in order to do this. I love the detail that Jason tromps through the the puddle and the cop like jumps onto the rock so he doesn't get his shoes wet. Yeah, that is great. 
All right, and he finds this dilapidated can uh, cabin. And one of the thoughts I have is, did Jason build this, or did he just take it over? Like this was some weird hermit's place. What do you think? I was going to say, cabin is a strong term. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is almost a, a lean to. Right. Right. Um, it's it's like this is a fancy uh, like homeless shelter. The interior looks more composed than the exterior. You know what? The, uh, the current day, Jason, I would say, like, I would buy that this was, I would guess this used to be a cabin or a house of some kind, and only the bones of it existed when Jason put in the work to, like, put all of the corrugated metal on the outside of it and kind of, like, rebuild the the actual, you know, kind of, like, skin of the building, so to speak. So you think but, he put work into this? Well, it has plumbing, apparently. So, uh, well, someone put work into it for sure. But yeah, I, I think... Yeah, I think what I'm this, trying to this, figure out, though... This Jason seems industrious. Yeah, and like, I think it's not out of the realm of possibility that this Jason could be that handy. But it's not locked in. He's He's got a hammer, John. Yes, he does have a hammer, and he knows what to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's pause it there. Uh, as he embeds, embeds said hammer into the back of the deputy's head. I'm of two minds on this, because I would believe that Jason just commandeered this property, You know, if you want to be so generous as to call it that. And he's just been living off the land and he saw that it's a bit, you know, a a superior shelter to subsiding entirely under trees and and, in caves and whatnot. It's somewhat of a a statement to suggest that he would have any anything to do with the maintenance or modification of, of this place. But. This Jason being this Jason, where we're assuming that he can maybe make a phone call and certainly track a girl, you know, a a distance uh, away from the camp that, you know, is his stomping grounds on Crystal Lake. In that context, I would think he's entirely capable of, if not constructing this place from scratch, as Richard's saying, personalizing it or in some way or making it work for him. We never really know. I think that this is one of the more insightful looks that we get into the character ever because we can see actually how he lives. And that's tremendously telling. And at this point in the series, he is living somewhere. Uh, He has a domicile and this is it. And as you look around, you can see that, yes, there is a toilet and there is furniture and there's a humanity to it, a grounding, a verisimilitude that you you just, you know, completely abandon the idea of, you know, Jason in future movies having a home is not even, you know, something we would contemplate. So this is a very interesting scene until you get to the marcus nispel uh, remake yeah i forget he he had a home in in that one yeah he's like a subterranean dwelling i'd say it's more sophisticated that's a classier jason (laughs) 
I forgot that. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a while. Yeah, he's got booby traps, and I saw it. I saw it too recently. Uh huh. <laughs> not not a not a fun watch. The deputy stumbles upon the shrine room that we will see later, and and it's so there's even a light in there. Apparently, uh, we have to assume candles, perhaps, because we see candles later, which I know is uh, implausible. And dangerous, frankly, John. Yeah. <laughs> in the middle of a forest. I mean, come on. Like, that's how that's how fire starts. It's all right. Well, Smokey the Bear, fortunately, is prowling the area and could <laughs> set Jason straight. Popped up on cocaine, <laughs> probably. Yes. Uh, the cop was so horrified by what he saw in that room, um, he did not sense Jason's approach, and then it's hammer time. And yeah, this this cop dies hard. Oh my god! I'm sorry. Did you just never mind. Um, I'm I'm not like specifically making a parachute pants no, joke you, there. You know, you, you really, really were. You said it's hammer time. <laughs> <laughs> That's what that means. Yeah. If you tied uh, in parachute pants, it actually might have been. Then, then at least you're going for a twofer. John, I, John, I want you to apologize. Apologize to our listeners. <laughs> um, no. Okay. <laughs> Stand by. You're right. You gotta, you gotta hold it. That's the only way to make that joke work. <laughs> All right. So this was kind of a, a, a stoner thought, but this is like I want to maybe wrap, begin to wrap up part one of our autopsy with this idea i know you guys probably aren't big comic book guys and i I really am not uh anymore but it it appealed to me the idea that you know the incredible hulk was sort of mindless but super powerful and there was an incarnation though of the incredible hulk that was the gray hulk right and it wasn't as he wasn't as strong physically, but he was actually somewhat more formidable in the sense that he could function in society more. He was smarter. He was sly. He was uh, more intelligent. And that made him a more interesting monster than he would otherwise be. Obviously, this this Jason is not going to you know, get a, a temp job in the office and, and, and pay his bills. But he seems closest to functioning in society than any other incarnation. To double back to what I said at the top, we're altering an archetype here in some ways that I think make him more interesting than a, a juggernaut on the march, which is where he ends up as a character. He's, he's He has characteristics in this film, the home... The, the phone call, the moving the kettle off of the burner that tell us there's an inner life here. He's living somewhere. Characteristics of a person, not just a mindless killing machine. How much did you have to pay Quentin Tarantino to write that monologue for you? <laughs> Um, I have a let, let's just say I have a lifetime uh, ticket to the new Bev, but it cost me. 
that's it. I, I, it's a fascinating point, and I like that lens as a way of putting putting it through that. You said that we are we are we are sort of rewriting an archetype, but in fact, this is a step in the evolution of the archetype because the archetype didn't exist at this point. Yes. Well, I find it interesting that, that that this is where this is where we started. We started with a character that felt human and had these characteristics and had these shadings, and it just devolved into a maggot-faced tank finding a shed full of garden tools so that he can just kill anybody he comes across. So yeah, you're right. I don't think I don't think there's a precedent for where he ends up. You're right. Yeah. Like he defines the precedent, the archetype, and uh, up to this point, audiences assumed that there would be some psychological realism. They they weren't willing to embrace back to the comic book kind of archetype, this unidimensional slasher killer that had no mooring at all in realism. Like that would be something that audiences grew to accept or appreciate, but it was sort of the assumption at this time that you needed a little Norman Bates to him. You needed a little bit of at least dime store psychology to justify the character. And I know that's a very dated reference, but Norman Bates or psychology dime store. Or psychology is something that nobody under 30 would ever fucking <laughs> understand at this point. <laughs> They're like, first off, what the hell is a dime store? <laughs> and even I don't know. I just grew up like knowing that that was a thing <laughs> that, that would be bandied about <laughs> in conversations like this. <laughs> Dollar general psychology. Yeah. <laughs> right. Thank you, Rich, for bringing it home to today's audience. All right. Well, Rich, any other, like, what are your takeaways from the last few minutes of banter here? I don't know that it's necessarily fair to call it a, a de-evolution of, of character, but I there's some sort of intersection between what you're talking about and where this is going. And I think the nature of where we were talking about that sequels, at least sequels in this, the way that that this series would become a, a sequeled franchise would become where you have no continuity of character other than your antagonist. And inherently in, in order to, you know, have a series that is having multiple sequels, I think you have to have some evolution of character in order to just motivate a new film and when your character is as is as simple as this one ultimately is in terms of his motivation and, and, and goals, right? The only way that you can really evolve them is to make him more and more bizarre and therefore less and less human. And I think that that's like the the the, the path that this is on. But it's interesting that this is sort of like position zero in terms of Jason's character, given that like he wasn't really a character, so to, in, so to speak in the first one. So it's like, this is his starting position and it's all kind of like downhill from here as you have to strip away from the humanity and just sort of like add, you know, bells and whistles and, and gimmicks to sort of make him progressively more and more of a, a, a cartoon to compel you to come back six and seven and eight times. Why um, do you use the word cartoon? That's exactly what, when you were talking about it, that's what popped into my head. 
But you know, he's not especially he's not especially nuanced in this either. It's like I mean, we were talking about we were talking about shadings of character and action and motivation in this thing that are only compelling in retrospect. Like I think that in watching this upon its release, I mean, this is a very thin uh you know character studies as far as your antagonist goes and this movie benefits from having a stronger supporting cast and i think that that's already you know like apparent you know not all of them but like a, a handful of them i think it's going to carry this movie through to to the end as well and what makes it like a, a good watch that and like the cat gang thrown through the window that was worth the price of this alone you definitely hit on my read of this at this point, he can't be larger than life. He can't be iconic. This is the starting point. You're not just going to introduce this character as this sort of strange, comic booky, cartoonish character. You have to at least have the veneer of of realism in order to get the audience to get on board with it. But it is no more than a veneer. There's no real character depth or something to to jason and now in retrospect is only by comparing him to the other jasons that i I am so excited or glomming on to this idea that this jason has some degree of psychological texture and could in any way be a real person who you know is capable of doing things that the jason we come to know and love never could it's really more about by comparison than in a vacuum that this Jason is so interesting or special. Be that as it may, it's still fun to look at this side of Jason or incarnation of Jason that is so unlike all the others. But this doesn't exist in a vacuum. This exists in a world of slasher films, many of which take none of the time that this film does to give the, the the slasher any any shading at all. I remember as a kid watching this film and being thrilled at that experience of seeing this hut and seeing this weird shit inside and having this sense of like, oh, like this is what Jason does in between killing sprees. You know, you're never going to get that again. Um, that's something we asked him through all of the Halloween movies. What the fuck was Michael doing? This is the only movie. It's like this is what he was doing. He was living here, and so it gives it gives him a little bit of shading. And you're right. You put that together with characters that have a little bit of shading, performances that work, relationships that you kind of sort of care about a little bit. You put those two things together, and what you have is a fairly elevated slasher film, and probably uh, certainly by by many metrics the best of the Friday the 13th franchise. And I think the best of the Friday the 13th franchise has to be regarded as one of the great slasher films ever made. Well, yeah, that's why it's here. That's why we're talking about it. We all, you know, voted this one in as the standard bearer, even though it doesn't have some of the indelible traits that we would end up associating with the Friday the 13th movie. So, yeah, cool. Let's leave it there for now. This movie kind of splits the difference between all of the the future films and previous slasher movies and just the expectations of the audience before they were totally codified into, all right, we're just going to watch some 
hulking mass killer murder people it's still at least making an, an, an effort to to tell a more complete story and that it's kind of the best of both worlds so i think i'm i'm glad that that we're talking about it and we will talk about it more so for now uh, i hope you've all enjoyed it and we'll be back soon adios